Pee on every snap and have fun. And last, and most importantly, be physical. We gotta do something. We gotta do something. Put your shoes on tight. Welcome, everybody, to episode 26, Hard Edge Football Podcast. This is Coach Rich Rodriguez. And joining me, of course, is my partner, Raquel. How's it going today? You know, we're recording on Monday evening, so today is actually your birthday. That's right, Raquel. It's my birthday. When you get to my age, you kind of hope they go by pretty quick, but you're glad to have another one. Exactly. We got some important stuff to talk about on this week's episode. A lot of stuff we're going to dive into, and and as always, and I know you remind them, we want some input from from our loyal listeners and and some questions you may have for us uh, the next time. That's right. So quick overview of what we're going through this episode. We're going to go through tampering. We're going to have our Rich Rod rant. It's coming back this week. We've got a coaching tip with putting your coaches out on the field and clinicking. And we've got some run pass option, nitty gritty stuff. So we've got a fun episode starting off with what's going on in Monroe. What are you up to? Well, we're in Monroe. Again, we are still in the uh, dead period, so we don't have any recruits coming on. But here that ends June 1st. And so June is going to be an extremely busy uh, month in the world of college football for not only unofficial and official visits uh, throughout the entire month of June, but the camp circuits, you know, your own camps, visiting camps, you know, your mega camps, your seven on seven camps, O-line, D-line camps. We've got several of them coming up at our place. We're going to be a guest at several camps uh, to places we're going to recruit at. So it is going to be probably the busiest month for coaches in a long, long time. And it's going to be nice, Raquel, that we can actually see some recruits in person for the first time in a long time, in over a year. And I think that's really going to help because I, I know I mentioned this before. There's going to be a lot of mistakes have been made in this last recruiting class and maybe even in this one because of the lack of contact and lack lack of uh, vis- visibility in person that coaches have had. So this June is going to be an important month in football. What are some of the dates that ULM is hosting some camps and that you guys will be at some other camps? Well, our own camps, which is always going to be the most important thing, is, of course, is your own camps. We're having a seven-on-seven and O-lineman, D-lineman camp on Thursday, June 10th. We have a our high school camp for, for prospects, for high school guys and uh, entering grades 9 through 12 on the 13th, Sunday, the 13th of June from 3 to 6. And then we have kind of a unique, we're having a, a unique, I call it a unique, uh, postgraduate uh, junior college portal transfer camp on Neat. Saturday, June 19th from 3 to 6. Because there's a lot of people, guys in the portal, a lot of transfers that still don't have a home. And if you want to prove yourself and maybe be a Division One player, come to ULM, come to Monroe on the 19th at 3 o'clock and come prove yourself. And then, as you mentioned, we, we're going to be visitors at several other camps. And uh, we'll go to LSU's camp. Uh, that'll be on the 5th. And that we're probably going to be there also on their six, on the 16th. We're going to go to uh, Ole Miss's camp. They've, mm-hmm. they've allowed us to visit there. And that'll be coming up on June 4th. We'll also have probably going to be at Mississippi State's camp. My buddy Mike Leach is there, so we're going to spend a couple of days there. We're going to go to Texas A&M camp, camp uh, in mid-June as well. 
So, you know, our most important dates are, are the June 10th, the June 13th, and the June 19th for our own camps. But visiting A&M, visiting LSU, visiting Ole Miss, visiting Mississippi State, we'll see a lot of prospects there as well. So those got to be really crucial this year more than ever because of the pandemic and last year and just being able to see people in person that obviously it didn't happen last year. Yeah, that's why I, was, I mentioned earlier, Raquel, that you're going to see so many mistakes made because you can you can get a good evaluation from a player on film, but it takes a better evaluation when you see them in person, either at a game or certainly in a camp. And the advantage of having your, your own camps is that you can run them through your drills. You can time them in the 40. You can, you can get legitimate times. And so uh, it's going to be crucial in the month of June going forward, and it's also going to be important for – for us coaches to get caught up and make those connections in person with high school coaches as well during this time. When you are watching a recruit and a player in person at these camps, what are some of the things that you look for in evaluating their talent and skill? Yeah, that that's a good question. You know, you can, you can see their skill level a little bit when you throw and catch and you see them flip their hips and how, how, fat, how they run and through certain drills and all that. But you also want to see how competitive they are. I always look at, for instance, when there's a line of guys saying wide receivers going against DBs, and there's a line of guys, you see who wants to jump to the front of the line and go against anybody. And then sometimes you see guys like, oh, they count it up, like, oh, I don't want to go against that guy. So they move in the back of the drill or back of the line. I want that, mm-hmm. guy, that guy that's competitive and wants to take every rep against everybody. And I've made decisions on camps because of that, both pro and con. I've taken a guy, I said, this guy is – is a good player, but he's ultra competitive. And if you're really, really competitive, whatever shortcomings you'll have, you'll work to overcome that. And I've also saw guys that we thought we were going to like, and then they kind of hid in the drills where they went in the back of the line and didn't want to take reps. Well, I don't want that guy. So uh, there's a lot uh, to, to that guys can gain in the camp. And I think that's one reason why a lot of them want to come and show themselves in person. So in your opinion, if a recruit comes to a camp, but let's just say he won't run the 40 because he's maybe afraid that he's not going to run it as fast, would you knock that kind of down like hmm, maybe he just doesn't want to compete? Or or also, here's another thought too. Let's say that recruit is a little banged up and he doesn't want to run a 40 because he doesn't want his time to be slower than his actual time, doesn't want his ratings to go down. What are your thoughts? Do you think he should run that 40 even though he's a little banged up? What do you think? That is a that is the, the ideal point, Raquel, because we have seen them both. You've seen like guys like they're are they are they afraid to pull a hamstring or they don't want to, you know, uh, show their you know afraid they won't get the best time or are they really just trying to to are they really injured? Are they really know that they can't give their best? And you got to understand, you got to feel that out a little bit. Most of them will run it uh, when they go to camps. They understand that, and I think as a coach, you got to tell them, listen, this is not. You know, the end all be all. And this is, we're not making a determination based on our hand time 40 yard dash, so to speak. But mm-hmm. um, if he's not willing to compete in any drills and they just want to come and stand around a little bit, you're wondering why you're even there to camp. You right. Know? So, uh, you're allowed to come on official visits. And what's new this year, Raquel, is that on official or unofficial visits, you can now work out the guys. You don't even have to be to camp. You can, they can come on an unofficial visit and you can work them out and evaluate them. So I think it's it's important uh, for guys that they want to show what they can do. If you've got a bunch of offers or whatever, and you don't need to show that, then don't, you don't need to show that. But if you don't, or if you don't have the offer that you'd like to have, then come show your stuff in the camp. And and again, it's not in pads, so it's not going to be the, the final story, so to speak. But uh, there is a lot that you can show in camps. 
We're going to switch gears just a little bit, not too much, but just a little bit. There was this really interesting article that came out on ESPN from Alex Scarborough, who talked about how tampering has arrived in college football and it looks like a free agency. This is something that a lot of people have talked about for a couple months. We've talked about it a little bit on Hard Edge. What do you think about it? I mean, it's kind of just talking about how this transfer portal really is going to make a huge difference in the game of college football and possibly change it. Yeah, hello. People have made this decision to allow the transfer without sitting out a year. They're going to be in consequences. This was not an unintended consequence. This was you could everybody could have predicted that. How are you going to think you're such a competitive profession? There's so much at stake, and you think there's a guy that you might be able to get from another school that might be interested in your team, and he could come over right now and be eligible right now. That somehow contact's not going to get made. There's going to be they're going to have a buddy on your team that wants to have him to come, or you're going to have a mm-hmm. coach that knows a coach at their high school. That's going to mention, hey, so-and-so might be getting in the portal. And you can say, well, you can't respond, even party, third party, whatever. But let's not kid ourselves. I mean, tampering's been going on forever, and this is just going to make it more so because of the fact that they could come and be eligible immediately. I don't know why they don't have it. I don't know I've mentioned this a bunch of times. This is kind of a mini rant. <laughs> you know, <laughs> let everybody transfer if they want. Let them get a scholarship, but don't count against your five years. You know, you still get five. To, you still get another year to play. You know, four years of eligibility. But there, there is there is a serious concern amongst a coaching profession that if you're at a smaller school and you recruit and develop a guy really well, you know, another school is going to scoop him up and he can play him immediately for them at one double A, Division two, the the group of five schools, what have you. And so that's going to happen. And let's not kid ourselves. So you think an alternative to maybe fixing a little bit of this imbalance in the transfer portal is maybe still have the transfer portal, but if you transfer, you sit out a year, but you just do- it doesn't count against your eligibility. Yeah, it's like a COVID year. You know, you go and you, and you still get on scholarship. You still get all the benefits. You just can't play in the games. Mm-hmm. And and uh, you know that I mean, people say, well, they should have the right to to. To transfer, well, you're given the right to transfer. You give them an extra year of education, free. You know, let 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 them do that. But I mean, when you make them eligible immediately, and a guy, you know, teams that look at, man, I need to help this position or that position, whatever, then you're going to have tampering. And let's not kid ourselves. They can they can have they can hire uh, 25 ex FBI people to try to catch it. You know, tampering is going to go on, and it's going to be uh, – if it's not through the coaches, it'll be through their high school teammates or some kind of other friends of the program. And, of course, talking about who this will also hurt, the transfer portal, is going to be the high school athletes because people are going to probably prefer to take a more developed older guy in the college game versus a 17-, 18-year-old athlete that's still growing, still learning the game. So shifting gears once again a little bit, but similar topic, a recruit that is committed to Texas has decided to opt out of his senior year of high school football to prepare for college ball. What do you think about this? Do you think this is going to be the start of a new sad trend? I hope it's not a trend. Listen, I'm I'm all for let whatever guys want to choose individually, let them choose individually. 
Uh, I hope it's not a trend because, you know, you're losing out on the experience of being a high school athlete and trying to win and have success for your high school. And those are lifelong memories. You only play football for a short period of time. And I understand the logic. If you're a running back, you only have so many carries. And I mean, that's in the pros, you know, so many carries. In college, I understand that. And I I go back to Raquel, I'm going back on it again, is why do you have to wait three years to go in the NFL? If you're good enough to come out of high school, then go. Guess what? There's not too many that will be. So they need a couple years at least in college. But if they if they make it open it up, then open it up. Let, let, let a guy, if he thinks he's good enough after junior year in high school to go to the NFL, well, hey, buddy, go try. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? You'll, you'll find out something different. But it's, it's, it's crazy that we have that, that rule in itself because all guys are now are talking about going to college, not for the college experience, getting an education. They're going there to – prepare themselves for the NFL. Well, that's true. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you're ready after one year, then you think you're ready after one year, then go. And the high school guys the same way. I think, you know, I, I don't think that's going to be a trend, but I hate for guys to miss out on the high school experience because somebody is telling them, hey, you're going to be an NFL guy and you only have so many carries in your body. So let's start your, your 14 years old. Let's start limiting your carries now. You <laughs> know? Crazy. Too, yeah, doing too much there. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're. Uh, I mean, NFL is five, four or five years down the road, and and uh, you know you, you'll be okay. What about multi-sport athletes? So if you're, I mean, you and in high school you played four sports. What do you think about that? Do you think players should focus on one sport? They should they play multiple? Do you encourage them? junior senior year to maybe stick to one what are your thoughts i, I like on that? i like the multi-sport athletes myself i yeah. mean talk to a lot of my colleagues eh? that's one of the first questions you'll ask you know especially skilled guys or even big guys you got a six six big guy does he play basketball does he wrestle does he run track play baseball i mean i like multi-sport athletes and if 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 you're clearly if i always tell the other guys if they ask should we play other sports i'm like are you playing are you on just on the team or on your plan, if you're a starter or, or key backup in basketball and you're a starter in baseball, or you can contribute to track team and help them win meets, what have you, then by all means, play. Enjoy it. And it helps mm-hmm. us. You know, I like watching our guys play other sports. You know, I don't think any college coach would tell you, no, no, just stick to football or no, no, just stick to basketball. Play them all if you're good at it and can enjoy it for sure. So we're back with a Rich Rod rant this week. What is your Rich Rod rant going to be? You know, I've kind of been on a rant on episode 26. I may be in like a, a whole episode rant. Ranting mode. Here, I can remember uh, just a few years back when we were talking. This is before they passed the, 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 the rule that you could feed your players, mm-hmm. which is finally it passed, that you could feed them and not take it out of their check. You know, there was a sort of a trend or a, a want from athletic departments to build a like an athletic dorm so to speak or an athletic village where their athletes could house into like apartments or condos right on campus and have their cafeteria there get their meals and all that kind of stuff and the NSA wouldn't allow you to do that now you can you can you can build a structure but it has to be whatever 50 percent regular students whatever and the reason was they have to be treated like a regular student and I thought to myself they're not regular students. Everybody that knows, you know, college athletes, particularly Division One athletes, are not regular students. Their schedule is completely different. The time commitment they got to make to their craft is completely different. 
I always felt like they were the Olympic athletes uh, at the same kind of the same age, same mindset uh, that that uh, have to train year round. You know, and you know, you look at the Olympic athletes; they have a, they create an Olympic village. They have like condos and townhouses, whatever that they live in, and they have their doctors there and their health professionals and and their wealth. They have everything and everything, strength staff, everything. Everybody's right there to help them. You know, get good at their craft. Well, why don't they do that in Division One? If a school is willing to build a on spend the money because they got the money and they want to spend the money on building an athletic village for their student athletes where they have everything there and they take care of them. I think they should be able to do that. Now that would put more money in their pockets. All right, you know you you'll know that they when they get their checks they're spending it on you know they can spend it on things that they really want to instead of spending on you know some things they shouldn't be spending on. And if you're a parent, Raquel, if as long as your son or daughter has a nice roof over their head, they're getting their meals taken care of, and they got somebody look after them from a health and wellness standpoint, you know the rest of it's going to be okay. Well, that's what you're going to assure them that they're going to live in this nice place right on campus. They don't even have to drive, and and they'll get treated special because they are special to be athletes like that. So for the NCAA to come out now, all of a sudden they got all this stuff going home, and now they're going to be professionalizing them with NIL and all this kind of stuff. Well, you should have just let them be like an Olympic athlete and create their village and create something really, really nice. Well, if they're there for three years or four years, uh, they feel like they got something special. So you just want to, you want them to be treated right. You want them to be treated. They they put in a lot of work. And people say, well, you know, they're going to get, they're going to get their money now from NIL. Let's be honest. Like how many people are really going to, how many athletes are going to make a lot of money from that? Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to have your handful of people that, that, that uh, the stars in division one at the top programs make some money, but you know, the majority of them, it's not going to change anything for them because they're not going to get deals and all that. But if you do something where they all have a, great place to live like an olympic type of village now you're taking care of all of them mm-hmm. now all of them are getting treated special not just the the, the five-star quarterback that's going to get billboards it'll be every athlete in every sport in every position and now you're treating them all fairly and well and that to me is as a coach that's what you love to have but i think as a player you're like saying like yes I'm an athlete. I'm getting my meals. I'm getting a little stipend check and I'm living in this really nice two or three bedroom condo right on campus in the athletic village. I got my health. I got my mental health people here. I got my strength coaches, academic assistants. There's even an office for a, a brand. If I want to talk about my brand and my NIL right around the corner. I mean, just makes too much sense if they're going to do, if they're going to take care of the athletes, take care of them. What is your coaching tip of the day today? Okay, I want to talk today because I was talking about this because we have a lot of young coaches, some really, really good young coaches here at Louisiana Monroe. And and there's always, um, you know, a point where as uh, older coach, I guess we could say, is that we feel an obligation to help some of these young guys uh, grow and learn the profession. Well, one way to do that is I've done this before with my staff, particularly maybe in the month of June, before you know, you take a break in July and camp starts in August, what have you, is you take your staff outside and you go by position just with your coaches and say you have the wide receiver coach out there and you say, okay, we are your players, the rest of the coaches. Take us through three or four of your favorite drills that you do daily and tell us why you use them, how to do the drill, and what's the purpose of each 
each drill that we're doing and have us kind of run through it as old old people and, and, and understand it. And you, why do you do that? Because you want to make sure guys are doing drills that are related to your offense and defense that you can see there's a progress that they're going to do by doing them, they get better. And then they can answer the questions in case the players want to know, why are we doing this? You know, I, I always mm-hmm. talk about, you know, I've said this before in hardest football, is like why do wide receivers coaches ever run a drill like, you know, with cones on the ground where they run to this cone and run to that cone to show the depth of the routes. Well, so there's no, you don't, last thing you want to do is have your wide receivers running routes with their eyes down, looking at mm-hmm. cones. You want them to have their eyes up. Right. So you shouldn't run routes with cones. They should because it train it trains them the bad way, and so you just do a lot of drills that make sense. And the coaches by doing that, I even to myself, you're like, you know what, you know, I'm I'm trying to make sense of myself why I do this drill, and mm-hmm. you're, then you could tell your players this is why you do the drill, and it just helps them all learn. Yeah, I think if you explain to your players why you're doing a drill, it will help them actually learn. Because I know growing up, whenever I would do tumbling and gymnastics, my coaches would have me do drills and they wouldn't explain why I'm doing them. So I'm like, how is this? How am I going to apply this to when I'm upside down? I'm not going to be able to apply this. Well, I'll tell you, Rebecca, I know you said that. We said this on the show before. It's like, what's the difference between kids now and 20 years ago? They're smarter now. They walk around <laughs> with that little computer. They re- and if they don't know the answer, they'll Google it and find the answer. So mm-hmm. as a coach, you better know what, you know, be on top of your game and, and make sure that, uh, you know, your, 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 your athletes, they're, they're smart, but make sure they're, they're really knowing why you're, you've got to have them do that drill. Yeah. And there's no shame in saying you don't know too, because if you don't know, they're going to be able to tell if you don't know, and you're just That's making a good up an question. answer. I know we brought this up before. So I've had a coach ask me that, Coach, what if they asked me a scheme question and, you know, and I should know the answer, but I don't, don't really know? Well, just tell them. You know what? I should know, but I don't know that. Um, but I'm going to find the answer and get back with you. And you'll get more respect doing it that way than trying to bullshit your way through. And that's always happens a lot. There's, there's times where then a player will ask a, a question to me and I'm like, you know, I, that's exactly right. I have to go back and make sure I think about that. And, and so that's when you engage with your players like that. Yeah, uh, you know you're going to get better. We're diving into the nitty gritty of football this week. First thing we're talking about is run pass options, first level and second level conflict reads. We're getting really specific this Here week. Here we are. There you go, Raquel. <laughs> you understand it. Yeah. Can you explain the difference between the two and what the difference is between first level, second level, and kind of go through that process? Yeah, see, an RPO, which is a run-pass option, everybody's kind of the rage of football at all levels now. It's really uh, before there's an RPO, there's an RRO, which is run-run option, which is started with, you know, we were one of the first to do this, I think, 20-some years ago, where your quarterback had a, a, a first-level read, like a defensive end particularly, on a zone read that if the – he would, we would not block him on the backside, and the quarterback would read him. And if he squeezed down the line of scrimmage, the quarterback would keep it and run off the edge. If he was up the field or if he stood still, you could hand it off. That's a first-level read on a run-run option, either the run to the running back or run for the quarterback. Now you've added a run-pass option where you maybe would block that defensive end but read the linebacker in the, in the box. 
on the same play. If the linebacker fit inside the tackle the running back, then you would pull it really quickly and throw a slant or a glance or something uh, right behind the first level. And that's a second level read. So you're reading a linebacker or what I call a cover down, a guy over top of the slot. So your eyes for your quarterback change from reading an end to reading a linebacker or a defensive back. Now, the third thing you can have is you can have a run, run pass option, an RRPO. Now we're getting a lot of alphabets here. You know? <laughs> and that's when the quarterback would read the first level guy first, the defensive end. Then if he pulled it, then he would read the second level guy to keep running or throw it out. And that's, we were running our RPOs back when we were running a defensive end with a bubble screen with the slot. So it became second nature for us to, to evolve to what everybody's doing now. In fact, we were doing it way back then. We just didn't call it RPOs. We, we just, you know, we, that was just our base plays. But it's important that your quarterbacks get trained on where, what to do with their eyes. Mm-hmm. They have to be great, have to be really good ball handlers, understand where the ball is going. But they also have to be have to have fast. I call it fast eyes. They got to be able to see things quickly, and be able to adjust quickly. And if you do that, I always call it, it's like a quarterback is like a point guard on a fast break that can shoot the three. He may dish it, he may take it to the hole, or he may stop and pop Steph Curry wise and shoot the three. <laughs> and so the quarterbacks you see, their eyes are always. You know, you'll make mistakes once in a while, but the the good ones to run it effectively, they got their eyes in the right spot all the time. I remember back in the day you considered, and you might have done it a couple of times, where you put cameras on your quarterback's helmets during practice so you could see where their eyes were going on the plays. I don't think you've done that at Monroe at all, but how much did you actually do that and how much did it help? I did that for a while because it's made so much sense. And I'm going to tell you, it was so hard to watch the film and made you you dizzy. almost made you want to puke. (laughs) The cameras were bobbing all over the place. And I'm like, oh my gosh, if that's really like this. There's no way we could do that. (laughs) So, yeah, the camera was moving so much that I got dizzy and almost wanted to throw up. So we we quit using the cameras on it. And the best way to do it is, I guess, lack of of any other thing is just practice. Just wrap it, wrap it, wrap it. And make sure his eyes are in the right spot. And you could kind of tell that by watching the film by the location of his helmet. Yeah, so technology can't really advance there. Just good old-fashioned practice. Yeah, practice. (laughs) We're talking about practice. (laughs) So one of the things that you also are unique in, that you actually run a true zone scheme versus some people, most people run a man zone scheme. Can you explain the difference between these two? Yeah, let's have Raquel getting into the the schemes up front with the big fellas. Yeah, do some research. Man zone. (laughs) Yeah, every every line coach I work with and every place I've been have had outstanding line coaches and they've all been a blast. And I've got a good young one with me now. You know, I had Jack, you know, my man Jack McNeil a couple years ago. And <laughs> I've had some great ones, Greg Fry, Rick Trickett, um, uh, Jim Mahalchek, and you go on and on. But Herb Hand, Herb, Herb was, was working with the tight ends in line with me before. These guys are all great in their own respects. One thing that we do that's a little bit different, like on the inside zone, for instance, you can have a double team up front with the one and three technique and double team the down guys up to the linebackers. That's how a lot of teams, most teams will run their zone. We, we have that scheme, but we also have what we call a true zone or track scheme where we don't necessarily 
identify we're going to block this double team this guy or double team this guy we're going to take a track through our gaps through a gap through b gap through c gap and we're going to block anything that's in that track if there's two guys in that track we're going to block two guys in that track and i know that sounds silly but there shouldn't be two of their guys in a gap because if they do they've left some gap wide open right but teaching linemen to work take powerful track steps and not crossing over on the inside zone is a is a learned skill that you have to work on every day. Now, an advantage is that is if you get a lot of movement up front, the slants and twists and all that kind of stuff, or you get backers that blitz in a gap, or whatever, that tracking system will at least allow you to get a hat on a hat and we'll let guys come through free. And you know, everybody will talk will tell you that penetration kills zone plays. Well, if you take a track the right way, you can. You may not get as much push as you want up front. You hope you can, but you at least will eliminate a lot of the penetration that causes negative yardage plays. And what are the two things that will kill an offense? It is negative yardage plays and turnovers. If you have zero <laughs> of those, how many? Ta- what's the percentage to win, Raquel? If you have zero negative yardage plays and zero turnovers, what's the percentage that you'll win the game? Isn't it like 90-something? It's 100%. Somebody <laughs> proved you wrong. If you ever have a game where you've had zero turnovers and zero negative yardage plays, you'll win 100% of the time. I dare anybody that's listening to find a game where that was the case. And that's hard to do because even one five-yard penalty is a negative yardage negative play. Negative yardage two play, yard, yeah. A, a one-yard loss is negative yardage play. I think the closest I've ever gotten to doing that 2013, Arizona, we were playing Oregon, and Marcus Mariota, they're ranked top five in the country at home at Arizona. Mm-hmm. And we we won against the ranked team, like 40-some to 13 or 18, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have zero, but we had two negative yards plays, one five-yard penalty, I think it was, and one two-yard loss or something. Other than that, it was flawless. B.J. Denker was flawless in that game at quarterback, and we won huge. It was a, That was a good day for the Wildcats. So everyone knows if you have zero negative yardage plays and zero turnovers, your chance to win the game is like 100%. 100%. Now, now, and what, now here's a question for you, our listener. Now, what causes negative yardage plays or turnovers? Some Usually it's like a missed assignment. Somebody goes the wrong way or didn't block the right way. Or, or quarterback makes a boneheaded play or something like that. Missed assignment, and, and uh, sometimes it's just a poor execution mm-hmm. to do that. And those are things that you hopefully you can take care of during the week in preparation. So we're going to go to our questions of the week. First question is, as a head coach, what are some of the traits you look out for in your athletic training room slash in your ath- head athletic trainer? Who are some of the best athletic trainers you've been around? Well, I've again, I've, every place I've been, I've had outstanding athletic trainers, and they're so important. It's like the strength coach and equipment manager. Uh, you forget how much they're how how important they are sometimes, but they deal with your student athletes every day, all the time, more so than your coaches do. And so you got to have one that's obviously very knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, he or she that understands. Certainly, the the the, the profession uh, of what the trainer does you know, from a medical standpoint, from a treatment standpoint, and also from a coach's standpoint. Like as far as you know, giving the coaches this is what we think, 
how, how long it'll take before he's out, and this is what he could probably do or not do. And they're always on the same page with you. No coach should ever try to interfere with a medical decision. That's not our field. And I don't think coaches do that. But the, the trainers have a way of, of having the athletes at ease, of, of being able to communicate well with them, obviously have the right treatments and access to all the medical things they got to have. And then they're strong enough to say, hey, coach, he's got to sit out this practice. Or, hey, coach, mm-hmm. he's – not going to be ready and be able to be uh, help them get on a field and, and be be uh, very transparent with everything. But they got a big job. They got this, uh, you know, in all sports because the players look for them for any time they need, not just in the you know, uh, cure of injuries, but the prevention of injuries. So mm-hmm. they're critical. How important is it also for athletic trainers to create trust and build trust between themselves and the athletes? Because that's so pretty important when you're talking about your body and your health. It, you want to create a trust when healing or preventing injuries. I think that's the biggest word you just uh, uh, you just brought up, Raquel. That's, mm-hmm. That was probably the first thing I should have said. And you said it because <laughs> you're probably used to it as, as an athlete yourself. Is you got to have trust that the players, the athlete will trust that they, what you're telling them is the best thing for them. It's mm-hmm. the best thing for their future as well. And and you can see that a lot of times this communication, a lot of the times the best athletic trainers are the ones that communicate very, very well, not just with the with the student athlete, but also with their family, with the parents. And man, I've seen over the years, you know, you've seen some I have seen some really serious injuries and the, the care that these trainers take from the time they get injured all the way up through the rehabilitation process is just phenomenal. And they're the ones that stay with them at the hospital if they got to have a surgery. And, you know, unfortunately, if you coach long enough, particularly in football, you see some devastating injuries and the training staff is at the forefront of, of taking care of that. Our next question is once the dead period is over and you eventually do some home visits, what are some of the topics you talk about with recruits and their families? How do you connect with them? Yeah, the next next time you do home business will probably won't be until December when the contact period comes up. Right. But one of the things you try to do in a home visit, you know, we, there's always some salesmanship going on there. But I think your best uh, method as a coach to go in there is let them get to know you and get mm-hmm. to know you get to know them and just let them relax. I always like to laugh and tell stories and and then you get the families comfortable with doing that. That's why I loved home visits. I, probably my favorite part of recruiting, besides the great meals that you always had, <laughs> was, was always the home visits. When you got a chance to go see them at their home and visit with their family, and they'd always have a bunch of people there, aunts and uncles. And there was some time, I think it was 25 relatives in the house. <laughs> they were all fans that just wanted to ask a bunch of questions and you could tease with them. And that's, you know, that's where you really get to know what is this guy or gal? What are they made of? You know, what what's their history? What's their background? What 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 makes them tick? And so, I think as a coach, uh, you're trying to let them get to know you, and you're trying to get to know them, and let them see your true self, not just some salesman that's coming in there trying to sell your program, and and let them be comfortable with you. And I've had I've got a lot of stories that uh, that we could tell about home visits, but it was uh, uh, it was uh, it's always been a I think one of the favorite times of recruiting for me. Well, since we're we're talking a little bit about recruiting this episode and home visits, why don't you close us out with one of your more memorable home visits? Yeah, that's a lot of 20 some years of home visits, which I said, I love doing them. I've had quite a few memorable ones, 
that I that I can share. Here's here's what I always think about, buddy. Was um, this is back when I was at West Virginia. We're in Morgantown, West Virginia, and uh, we were recruiting this local guy, really good player. He was a local guy in town, and we had met him at camp. And of course, he never been to his house. And the first day of contact period, or the first week of contact period, come out, and uh, it was the first day we could go visit them and you know meet his parents and visit his home, what have you. And then Tony Gibson, you know, one of my longtime assistants, who by the way is a great defensive coordinator. He's a super coach and a really, really good recruiter. I think one of the best recruiters I had on my staff was tough. So I put Tony in charge of the local guys this first day we go out. So we're, I said, okay, Tony, we're going to see so-and-so and and, uh, uh, say his name's Johnny. We're going to go see Johnny at his house and make that visit. Right. So Tony pulls up to his house and we get out there and, and uh, we knock on the door and the lady comes to the house and says, hey, how you doing? And I'm like, how you doing? I'm Coach Rodriguez. She says, hi, Coach. Come on in. And we walked in a little bit. We make some small talk about this and that and weather, what have you. And so after a while, I'm like, it's just, you know, nobody else shows up. I'm like, well, where's Johnny at? How's he doing? She goes, well, I don't know. He lives next door. So <laughs> we were at the wrong house. <laughs> and we were talking to the wrong people. And I start I started laughing. And Tony was a little embarrassed. Like, uh, I'm like, uh, I'm like, uh, well, uh, she I said, oh, I apologize. She said, I was kind of wondering what Coach Rod was doing here at my house. I thought maybe you're selling season tickets or something. I'm like, no, no, no. I hope you got season tickets, but I was really here to see Johnny. And I said, uh, but she goes, Well, thanks for stopping by. I hope you have a good visit. So Tony and I laughed about it. Tony, we still got the kid. That shows you how good a recruiter Tony is. And uh, and all that. But yeah, you so that's that's uh, that was some of the uniqueness of home visits and recruiting. Yeah, some uniqueness of home visits and also shows you in West Virginia. They didn't even question it. They just like, Oh, no, hey coach, what's up? Hey coach, what you what are you for? <laughs> That's great. Well, I think that wraps up this week's episode. We're going to be taking a two-week break for the rest of the month of May and the first week of June. So if you have any questions, topics, ideas, make sure to send up, send them our way. We'll take care of those and answer those on our next podcast in a couple weeks. And if you're listening, let us know where you're listening from, and then maybe you might win a hard-edge football hat. Yes, we got a couple special things I know coming up. We've talked about Raquel and I. Uh, in some future episodes, and and uh, I think our listeners will really enjoy what's what we're gonna have coming up, and uh, really excited about it. So keep staying tuned in to Hard Edge Football Podcast. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Hard Edge FB and on Instagram at Hard Edge Football. We hope you guys have a great rest of your week. <laughs>